Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Geek Warning from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang. I'm joined today by Dave Rome and Ronan McLaughlin. Zach is off riding bikes in, well, Zach is off riding mountain bikes, I should say, in Moab, Utah. And Kaylee is spending the next few days in the car, presumably listening to a lot of podcasts. Uh, we have a lot of things to discuss today, including Primus Roglic's ill-timed chain drop on the individual time trial of the Giro d'Italia, Campagnolo's brand new super record wireless electronic road group set, some new spokes from DT Swiss, the return of Matt Wickstrom, and the upcoming Handmade Bicycle Show Australia. Welcome to the show, everybody. Dave, it's good to see you as always. Ronan, I feel like we haven't seen a whole bunch of you lately. Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, at least I've on the podcast away. anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was away. Uh, I think I just missed a couple of episodes and then I was away racing for a week. And then I was, as we're about to hear, in Italy last week for the Campag uh, product launch. So yeah, good, good to be back. Dave, are you testing anything fun right now? Uh, nothing, nothing too new. Some, uh, some fun things. Still, still riding that Epic World Cup, still playing with that suspension setting on it. Uh, yeah. And trying to wrap up a review of the classified hub system. Oh, oh, that's mm. pretty exciting. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Ronan might give me a hand on that one because he's also now spent some time on it. So. Excellent. Yeah. I spent, I spent five days road racing with the classified hub mm. and, a, and a 60 tooth front chain ring, which was fun. Well, that is more, that's five days longer than I've spent racing it or with a 62 tooth chain ring fitted to it. So I think Six, we 60. probably, 60. I, yeah. I couldn't go for 62. It's one of the things on my mind. I'm not sure I'm going to use it this week, but uh, the ever reducing chain ring clearance that we have on modern bikes, mm. uh, it's it's often overlooked, but anyway, I digress a bit. Yeah, cool. Nice. No, mine's fitted to a ro- uh, to a gravel bike at this time, so we'll uh, perhaps have different takes on it. <laughs> mm, yeah, you don't because you're saying that you don't have a sixty tooth chain ring on your gravel bike, huh? Mm, weird. I thought you were going to say because we don't have different takes in general, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no the the sixty tooth uh, chain ring on the gravel bike didn't didn't work out. Just uh, kept it was too, running it was running small. aground. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you kept high centering on boulders while you were gravel riding, Dave. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, before we get started, this episode of Geek Warning is brought to you by, uh, well, you, the listeners, actually, because uh, and it's because of the generous support of our members that we're able to do all this. Uh, monthly memberships at Escape Collective, we just kicked those off. Uh, those start at just $11.99 US. Uh, and actually, you can save 30% if you go with an annual membership, which is what we have been offering since day one. Uh, uh, if you want some more information on all of that, head to escapecollected.com slash join. And yes, please consider becoming a member. Uh, before we dive into the news, we've got a couple of things for this week's corrections corner. Uh, Dave, you and I had a little bit of a sp- somewhat spicy conversation about Cask's new helmet, specifically uh, one new feature, that the Fluid Carbon 12 thing. Uh, we heard from Cask. They, they let us know. Quite kindly, I should say, given mm. the, the conversation that we had, that uh, the new thing is not called Fluid Carbon 12 Composite Technopolymer. It's just Fluid Carbon 12. So our apologies, Cask. Yeah. Uh, and Ronan, I think you still have that that review coming, so we'll sit tight for that one. Um, and then from a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about Wheelsmith Spoke Prep uh, and how that may or may not be able to be brought back to life. Uh, and Dave, you heard from a couple of Escape Collective members who let us yeah. know that uh, that stuff can apparently be brought back to life with just water, thankfully. Woohoo. Yeah. 
so yeah, the mechanics that, that let me know that, uh, one of them also suggested that it might be a bit like paint, that at a certain point, once uh, once it's fully dried, then it's probably too late. But you know, once it's getting a little bit powdery and you can still sort of move it around like a slight wet chalk, then you can add some water and keep it going for longer. So there you go. I wonder if you can actually, well, I'm going to launch on, on a tangent here since Kaylee's not here to do it. Uh, have, have you, have either of you ever seen those like sugar bear ceramic things that you put into brown sugar to keep them from, from caking up? I have not. Mm, no, 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 no bakers in the bunch here. Well, uh, there, there are these little ceramic, I mean, they come in a variety of shapes and whatever, but they're just little, these little ceramic things and you soak them in water and then you kind of just like wipe them off a little bit and then you toss them in your bag of brown sugar to keep it from drying out and, and solidifying. And I wonder if you can do something like that with Will Smith spoke prep, maybe take those two little plastic things and put them in with one of those ceramic sugar bear things and put them in a glass container or something, maybe Eh, just a thought. Anyway, more complicated than adding a few drops of water. It could be more. Well, but it just keeps it from drying out in the first place, right? That's the point. Anyway, anyway. All right. Enough of that tangent. Uh, Dave, you also have another little bit of news that you wanted to add. Unfortunately, not some great news. Yeah, it's uh, had the passing of uh, an interesting industry member, kind of someone who is quite pivotal in many ways. Uh, So yeah, Bernard Roloff, uh, he passed away at age 73. yeah, the the engineer of the Roloff hub, uh, that 14-speed, at least in its latest iteration, the 14-speed internal geared hub. Uh, but I guess what uh, many people don't know about him is that uh, it was actually quite important for some other big things in the bike industry, uh, one being basically the modern bike chain. So yeah, his his first uh, chain patent, which is sort of their, their first product that they, they started the company on, um, was actually adopted by Campagnolo as Campagnolo's eight-speed chain. Uh, they they went out and sought the best bicycle chain, and they ended up finding this little German manufacturer, and that ended up to be Roloff. So yeah, they that chain design, I guess, did influence uh, yeah the modern chain that we know, and uh They've had other things like 1992, they had the first drop-in style chainwear checker. So yeah, thanks for uh, everything you did, Bernard. And uh, yeah, thanks to Adrian at Melody Wheels for letting us know about this. Mm, That's always a bummer to hear about talent like that passing away. Uh, We'd like to extend our best wishes to his friends and family. Uh, And thanks for the contributions over the years. He'll certainly not be forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. Um, All right, well... um, Moving on to some news, uh, we have, well, the end of the Giro d'Italia was pretty interesting to say the least. Um, we'll leave the racing discussion to a couple of other podcasts that we have here at the Escape Collective, but uh, from a tech perspective, the penultimate stage was pretty interesting because, so this year's GC was decided on on that penultimate stage. It was an uphill t- individual time trial covering about 18 and a half K with just over a thousand meters of climbing. Uh, and sitting in second on GC was Primoz Roglic of Yombo Visma, and he actually managed to leapfrog Geraint Thomas of uh, Ineos Grenadiers uh, by 40 seconds to land first in the GC at that stage, but it nearly ended in disaster. Ronan, what happened? Uh, yeah, we've seen Roglic climbing, I think it was about three kilometers to go on that climb, and I don't know if it was like a drainage gully or something across the road, but he hit it at an awkward angle, <clears throat> In sort of, well, he was he only had a single ring at the front, but in one of the larger sprockets at the rear, 
and sort of pedaling as high a cadence as you could you know possibly expect on a on a climb that steep and just whatever angle he hit it at he happened to pop the chain off which given how tight things were at that time i think at at that moment he was 16 seconds ahead of garen thomas there was 26 seconds between them on the gc going into that stage I think many feared that could have been disaster for Roglic and his chances of, of winning the Giro. But he kept it sort of calm as he usually does. Got off, got the chain on, got a push by one of the, well, the only fan who happened to be standing at Cedro, who also happened to be, I think, some connection to a ski jumping career, either a former coach or teammate or, or something like that. The, the, the person who happened to be standing there at that moment in time. Uh, and off he went and won the Giro. Um so yeah, I mean, obviously then the reaction online was, uh, you know, a mix between effing Wombai and Tram uh, haters, um, <laughs> which I, I feel was a bit unfair because at least myself, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it down to just the unfortunate angle he happened to hit that goalie up. And just to back up a little bit, um, so Yumbo Visma is sponsored by SRAM, and for that time trial, at, the, at that point in the time trial anyway, he was running um, a SRAM Red Explore 1x12 group set, uh, single chain ring up front. Uh, we did get confirmation that he was running a, a chain guide, a pretty pretty minimal one, but he was running a chain guide nonetheless. Um, I did reach out to SRAM to, to see if they had any comment on this, and uh, let's see, what did they say here? <laughs> they... Uh, Hold on, hold on. All the all we got from them, uh, the official statement was from the official statement from SRAM was quote We are incredibly excited to win the Giro d'Italia unquote. So needless to say, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion there. Uh, but that all said, um, I think all three of us have ridden that group set or various iterations of SRAM's one by road group sets in the past. Um, you know, drop chains are not anything new to road racing, road cycling. Uh, I guess you, we're usually used to seeing it uh, in two by setups. However, usually when someone's shifting up front, uh, and kind of more recently, we've seen some situations at high speed uh, where the chain has kind of gotten kicked off the chain rings up front due to like you know a rear free hub that had a little bit more drag, that sort of thing. Um, but Roglic was, as you said, uh, as you said, Ronan, he was. He was pedaling at a pretty high cadence. He was not coasting at all. He did hit that sort of drainage gully. It didn't really didn't really seem to hit it that hard, and he didn't seem to be going that fast either. Um, I, this is kind of a head scratcher for me because I don't really know how. I don't really know how this could have come off. Um, I mean, for, for for whatever you know, SRAM haters want to say about about SRAM stuff. Uh, one by drivetrains, especially with modern narrow wide chain rings and with a uh, pulley cage clutch, and particularly with any sort of chain watcher, those or chain guide, they're generally pretty secure. Um, do we have any ideas what happened here? I have a thought, which is that that gully probably caused him to adjust his cadence a little bit, or maybe even have like the a slightest like micro kickback at the wrong time, which would have dislodge the chain you know as it's bouncing at the bottom there because that chain catcher wasn't doing a lot like it was a pretty minimalist chain catcher and it was really only on the top span of the chain so if he managed to kick the chain off the bottom of the chain ring at the wrong time then it can really it can still pedal itself off so uh and the clutches on those uh that you know that orbit clutch are not super tight either so 
you know, if you you go off road with that derailleur, you do still hear it bounce around a bit. So yeah, I'm. I think it's you know a lot of bad luck. I'm not going to blame Shram here, but it's. Uh, I think it probably could have maybe been prevented with a perhaps a better chain catcher as well, something that actually surrounded the chain rather than just sat on top of, of the chain. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. A lot of speculation. The footage that I've seen of it's not very good. It doesn't give any real conclusive answers. So, Ryan? Yeah, I've been sort of back and forth on whether I'm going to say this or not, but I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Uh, I don't have anything to back this up, but I do think just looking at Roglic's style, he is, you know, I, I don't know, does he run a saddle a bit high or does he have a, a, a different way, a, a different pedaling technique or something? But with his style and the way he hit that gutter and the way that sort of shifted his weight in the saddle and as such onto the pedals, I was sort of, what were we going to say, jumping to the same conclusion there as, as you are, Dave, and that it was just, yeah, it, it was, it, like I, I've used the same set, not not the same ratios, but the same setup of SRAM one by for the bike that I built for Paris Roubaix uh, and ridden that bike on the cobbles of Roubaix specifically because the chain retention is so good with those narrow wide chain rings. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it was, at, at, you know, watching the replay over and over again, he just seems to hit that goalie at like a, at the weirdest possible angle, which is understandable given that he's, you know, what, 40 minutes into a Giro d'Italia winning time trial and probably not really thinking or seeing all that straight at that moment in time, just concentrating, getting the effort done. Um, and I think had he had it any other way or had it come earlier in the climb when he's a bit more maybe alert or whatever, it, we, we, it probably wouldn't have happened. Uh, and and actually, it, just as I say that, am I right in thinking there was like these drainage gullies, like multiple points up up the climb? Sounds, it sounds right in my head, but I, I could be making that up. No, I think and, you're and right. That, because uh, if yeah. I remember correctly, I, I feel like I remember seeing some of them that were actually covered, weren't there? Uh, I mean, like the Formula One was on at the same time, so I, I might not have been paying that much attention. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> it was qualifying in Monaco, man. Like, come on. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I feel like there was more of these. And I also feel like having ridden one by a few times and having ridden a few wonky one by setups you know i'm thinking of my my everything set up there and throwing the chain a few times it's i i can just see how that happened um i, I don't think it would have mattered which which uh system you were using that that chain was more than likely coming off i, I mean, think i think it kind of does though it, it probably regardless of why it happened or how it happened it probably poses a question for yumbo visma and any other team, if they want to go down this route in future, which for me at least, I'm I think is a bit uh, is a bit sad. Um, you know, apart from the money end of it, I I do believe that Jumbo Visma, you know, part of their rationale for choosing SRAM is that SRAM are just much more open to setups like this. Like you're never going to have seen Roglic using that same. You know, was it 44 front and 44 rear? With, uh, 40, 40 front, right? 44 rear. 40, 40 front, 44 rear with, with you know, you're not even going to see him using one by with Shimano on the road uh, and same with Campag um, and Yumbo Visma being the sort of, the way they are and the attention to detail they they they, they have now. Um, 
you know, that was what they said in the press release at the time, which obviously makes sense when they're announcing a new partnership. But I, I do believe they have proven since then with White Van Art riding one by in a couple of races also, uh, that that actually is, you know, part of the this new partnership that they have there. Uh, Dave, this is maybe more of a question for you since I know Ronan, you're not a mountain biker, but um, I, I can't remember the last time I, well, first I can't remember the last time I rode multiple chain rings on a mountain bike. Um, but the other thing is I can't remember the last time I lost a chain up front on a mountain bike either with or without a chain guide. Yeah. Um, and you know, I certainly, I can subject but, those, but yeah. okay. I, I mean, but I certainly subject those bikes to a lot more, uh, a lot more bouncing around than I typically yeah. would on the road. Uh, do we have any ideas as to why this still happens on the road and why it happens so infrequently off-road? I, I have no idea on that one. I mean, I'm I'm thinking back. The last time I dropped a chain on a mountain bike was in, um, like really terrible sand, like wet sandy conditions where the whole group set just like bundled up with the sand until the point that the chain basically couldn't sit flat on the chain ring, and it was basically the sand that was throwing the chain off. And that was on like a brand new, I'd say XX1 group set. So it's 11 speed that that happened to me. I haven't. I can't recall a time that I've since dropped a chain off a mountain bike one by since then. So it was like six or seven years ago. So that's pretty good reliability when you think about it. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's, I don't know for any, like if anything, the road bike should be more secure because you, you've got a bigger chain ring. So there's more wrap on the chain ring and uh, yeah, there's, there's less, external influence on that on that chain right like it's going through less forces there's no suspension action working to throw it off the top uh i don't know it's it's a uh, it's just one of those things that i i don't understand why we keep seeing this happen i mean i'm sure if it was something that was easy to fix then it would have been fixed by now uh, i do wonder if maybe it's a um, like a chain stay length and chain line sort of thing because uh chain stay lengths do tend to be longer for mountain bikes than they are on the road um, so effectively those, those chain lines can be a little bit more extreme, particularly, yeah. uh, at either end of the cassette. Um, yeah. so that certainly could have something to do with it perhaps. Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. E- e- either way. Uh, yeah, this, this situation still is a little bit of a head scratcher. If anyone out there has some theories, uh, yeah. feel free to chime in. I mean, the, the only other factors here, are you're talking speed and cadence, right? So the cadence on, on road is often high when we're seeing these things, uh and and the speed is obviously far greater so perhaps there's maybe something there with like the the free hub as well playing a role in in you know once the chain starts to let go the the speed of the rear wheel is really sending that chain forward uh but yeah it's it's an interesting one so it'd be it'd be good to get the perspective of uh of someone designing this stuff on this one because uh, oh, i'm sure they have answers to be a fly on the wall with yumbo visma's mechanics yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel like most of the chain drops we see in the road, though, are as a result of a front derailleur shift. Um, you know, and you know, obviously that's not what happened here with Roglic, but mm. just just thinking of most times that I can recall seeing a chain drop, you know, watching on TV or whatever, it you know it doesn't seem to be as random as this. You can usually point to a, a yeah. front derailleur shift or something that that has caused it. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. This, there was, this, this one seemed one just totally by, out of the blue. Yeah, no, as far as one bike goes, I mean, we saw what at, at World Champs was it Belk? No, where am I where am I imagining that we last saw a one by drop on the road? Mm, I don't remember. I know we have seen I it. I mean, 
my not, my not sixty but... just won won by dropped about a hundred times on the final stage of that race, but that's an entirely different story. Oh, um, we can maybe get into it, it, we maybe get into that another time. Like I'm still investigating. <laughs> okay, yeah. okay, all right. Well, either way, point being, uh, for as advanced as drivetrains have come, they are still not entirely foolproof. Uh, and thankfully, Rogic didn't actually lose the Giro as a result of this. He still managed to pull it out. Um, so I'm sure that was a huge relief for him, obviously, and the team. And certainly, certainly for SRAM, <laughs> most definitely. Yeah. Um, all right, well, let's let's move on from this one. Speaking of group sets, uh, Camping Yellow, uh, as we mentioned earlier, uh, they've got a new super record wireless electronic road group set. And Ronan, you said you were in Italy for the launch event for this thing. What are we looking at here? It's it's very inexpensive, if I understand correctly. Um, yeah, they're really going for the volume play. Uh, I mean, it's 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 about five thousand two hundred euros. So yeah, it's not what bike do really, you get with that? Uh, you, yeah, that's the interesting part. Uh, there, there's no bike nor nor power meter with that. Um, but anyway, the the new group set it is Campagnolo's super record wireless twelve speed uh, disc brake only. Uh, new group set it is entirely wireless and um, so the shifters and both the radars are uh, there's no wires connecting them anywhere the the radars interestingly have not only campagnolo proprietary batteries but they're actually independent from front and rear so you cannot switch them between front radar and rear radar they're two entirely different batteries there and that's the result of them hitting a pacer owned by shram right that shram had the interchangeable battery that's kind of what we were told at the. Right. Well, it's not kind of what we were told. That is what we were told at the at the launch. I wonder if that was perhaps lost in translation a little bit, and that the SRAM's the radar patents inhibited Campag from maybe having you know uh, the same battery front and rear. I I can't quite work. The only reason I'm thinking of that is because I can't quite work out how you can patent having the same battery in two different things. Uh, it's like how how then do we have AAA and double A batteries and Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can't quite work out yeah, how enough. how you would patent that, but I'm not a patent lawyer, so uh, yeah. perhaps they have. Um, but yeah, this new group set, um, I think the apart from it being wireless, the other big thing is just the the sort of the gear ratios there. The campag have gone with up front. They've got a new well, they've got a fifty thirty four generating combo, a forty eight thirty two, and a new forty five twenty nine, and then out back they've got three new cassettes, all starting with a ten tooth. Uh, the widest of which is a ten twenty nine. So you've got, you know, you've got actually one to one gear ratio there. If you want with the the forty five twenty nine chainring and the ten twenty nine cassette, and then if you go the opposite direction, you go with the biggest chainring option. You've got a a fifty thirty four and uh, a ten to sprocket. So I think, as I said in the in the sort of the feature that everyone wanted today, in old money, that's the equivalent of like a fifty five eleven or or whatever. So. There is actually, you know, and that, that's what Campag have really focused on here is increasing the the range within the within the cassettes and the and the chain rings, but without introducing huge jumps between sprockets. So what they what they focused on was increasing the number of sprockets that have just a one tooth jump between them. So if I remember right, there's six one tooth jumps on the new twelve speed cassette, and then the Next couple of uh, sprockets are two teeth uh, between each, and then finally the largest sprockets have three teeth jumps. So they, they've really tried to keep those jumps as as small uh, as as possible. Um, but yeah, that's uh, there's a there's an entire 
deep dive on the new group set live on the website right now. Mm. Um, what what hasn't changed? Uh, actually, yeah, you just reminded me of the. I, I was running around my brain there trying to think. What well, there's one big thing I can't remember what it is. Buttons, buttons. <laughs> yes, it's these new buttons. Well, it's the. It's the uh, it's the death of the thumb shifter, at least in terms of their electronic group sets. Um, the the Campagnolo thumb shifter is no more, and it is now replaced with the two independent buttons behind the brake lever on on each shifter, uh, one up, one down, stacked one above the other. Um, they're let's just say I, I'm uh, sort of reserving final judgment on them until I've had more time to 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 ride to ride this group set a bit more after my initial ride which was granted just 40 kilometers about an hour and a half or whatever i i definitely was not getting accustomed to this new shifter setup um hitting the wrong button uh making accidental shifts uh, i just found the buttons were a bit too close together and you know being one above the other it just wasn't as intuitive as as any of the other systems on the market uh, and so it was definitely taking me a bit more time to to get it to get accustomed to it i mean the the levers or the button setup is very similar to what fsa does um and the the, the button operation itself like the physical operation is a little bit different um, but as far as where they are it's very similar they're basically just a pair of buttons tucked in behind the brake lever um and and as you mentioned in your article ronan i mean this is just a total sea change for campagnolo in terms of their whole philosophy to controls because they've always had this thing with you know, one one lever, one one lever, one function, sort of thing. Um, and and one thing I I thought was really interesting was when you mentioned how you have programmed your own EPS levers in the past. Um, and you you basically had set them up SRAM style, or with the with the one paddle behind the brake lever doing an upshift in the rear, another one doing a downshift, and then the thumb levers you used those to go up and down on the chain rings up front, which. Uh, it was actually pretty similar to how I program my uh, my Shimano dual control levers, um, but uh, the thing that is interesting is that you know one thing I really liked about one thing I really did like about EPS was that you really could kind of just mindlessly just like paw at something and you're gonna find like as long as you find that button you're gonna find the right button because there was nothing else next to that button to hit. Um, and now in this situation, it seems like you've got two buttons that do clearly different things. However, they are now quite next to each other. And it does seem like they, it does seem like they're opening themselves up to confusion for one, but also, um, I'm a little bit confused because you would think it's particularly given the cost, particularly given, uh, just sort of the market dominance of Shimano and SRAM at this point, that this group set is most likely going to appeal to kind of the Campagnolo aficionados already. Um, and this feels like something that's going to alienate them. I mean, it, it kind of does for me, like I'm pretty shocked to see that that thumb button is gone and just that whole method of operation is just gone. Yep. 100%. Like the, the early adopters of this group set and the people that are the biggest customer group for this group set is already Campagnolo's customer that are already on probably a previous generation of EPS they're the ones that are going to buy this first and giving them something, a learning curve. Like Ronan's basically in this this group, basically, as a as a previous EPS user. Giving them a, a learning curve and taking them away from a shifting preference that they probably already have just just feels like a big misstep. Yeah, it, it, it 
feels the same to me to, to be honest now and you know i can't i can't help but feel they've had this unique identifying feature that they've sort of that you know brands around the world would probably tell you that you you want to have this thing that people recognize you by and they've just stripped that out of their new group set and for me at least based on that first ride the new system is a lot more difficult to to sort of just naturally get a, a grasp of. I mentioned in the article, like I regularly swap between uh, group set manufacturers and mechanical and electronic and time trial and road setups. And you guys have mountain bikes as well. And we never really have, at least speaking for myself, I like, it never takes me more than about three and a half seconds to make the switch in my brain and just push the button that I need to push for whatever system that I'm on. And yeah, I just, I just wasn't getting that by the, by the end of this first ride. And, you know, I think the, I think you guys have hit the nail on the head there and that's, yeah, it's a super record group set at 5,200 euro. It's probably only going to appeal to current camp customers. Anyway, what worries me more is that, when it's eventually trickled down onto the new record or chorus or whatever comes next, there there was some hints at the launch that there would be a, a lower spec uh, wireless group set in the works. Whatever comes next, that is going to be what Campag sort of has to hang its hat on in terms of breaking into the, the market again. And yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I just don't feel that someone who maybe, you know, isn't a Campag customer at the moment or didn't like the thumb shifter there's nothing there to to win them over really like it's not that different enough to 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 you know to to get those customers and then for the campag fans or the campag diehards as they usually are yes you've you've alienated those also and i can't help but feel that it's the result of as we heard quite a lot throughout the 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 presentation uh, and even from uh valentino campagnolo himself and that the sheer number of patents that are out there now from the other manufacturers have restricted so much of what Campagnolo could do. And, and you know, presumably Shram's also restrict Shimano and Shimano's restrict Shram. And, you know, it, it, it's a vicious circle almost, but uh, Campagnolo definitely mentioned it more than a few times last week. And I feel that this new shifter setup is Campagnolo reacting to what they've heard in the market and that the thumb shifter is either love it or hate it. And they've tried to come up with something that will work better for all. And when they've tried, when they've made that decision to dump the thumb shifter, they've then probably run up against a few brick walls in terms of patent designs. And this is the best that they've been able to come up with without infringing on a patent. And to me, at some point, somebody should have just said, you know what, let's just stick with a thumb shifter. It's funny. I mean, we were just talking about, you know, sort of like all the SRAM haters out there and whatever, um, one thing I feel like people really can't criticize SRAM on is that whole ETAP method of shift actuation that they've had. It really was, it, it really was, is pretty brilliant because whereas Shimano and Campagnolo, when they did their electronic stuff, they basically had, they basically came out with electronic versions of the mechanical controls they already had. Um, SRAM took the opportunity to, to rethink how shifters should be actuated in general and just completely separated the functions between left and right because they could now. Um, and just to revisit this again, uh, you know, Ronan, like you said, the way that you program your own EPS shifters in the past with the, 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 the paddles behind the brake lever and the thumb buttons, um, I can't help but wonder if it, it can't be a patent thing 
because if it were a patent thing, then you wouldn't even have the capability of programming the buttons to be that way. Um, but I, it makes me wonder if companies like Shimano and Campagnolo don't adopt that, that method of shifter actuation purely out of just stubbornness, maybe? Because, I mean, it, it worked. I think it works better. I think a lot of people who have tried it, I think, would, well, would agree that it works better. Um, and to me, I feel like if they used that sort of setup with the kind of longstanding thumb shifter, uh, the thumb button actuation that they also had, uh, and the way that you have it programmed run. And I feel like, yeah, I mean, that to me, feels like that would be the best way to go. It just, it just makes me wonder if they would just have more fans, if they would have more devotees, if they had gone that way. I, I've always liked the thumb shifter. I have like mechanical and APS. I get along just fine with DA2. It's not my favorite. I find the buttons are a little close together. If you're, especially if you're wearing big gloves, you can hit the wrong one accidentally. But there is just what no big gloves for? That, what do that, they do? Why would you wear those? <laughs> if you're working in the garden and you happen to find yourself on a bicycle. Uh, okay, you, gotcha. Yeah. Um, Must be an Irish thing. Yeah. Um, it's for when you're cutting turf. That's <laughs> a joke from a different podcast. Anyway, uh, <laughs> the point I was going to make is that there is no denying that the axis or the e-tap shifter design is just you know by far and away the most intuitive um you know anybody jumps on a bike it just it just yeah it, it it's just intuitive and and this new i think i mentioned in the article also this this new campag setup which is very like fsa's we system also where you've got you know upshifts and downshifts at the rear that are moving the derailleur left and right and then you've got upshift and downshift buttons at the front that are stacked one above the other and it's it's kind of like uh, as i said trying to pat your head and rub your stomach at the same time it just <laughs> it wasn't going all that well when i was when i was out in the bike but um yeah uh like to move away from the shifter like the that's obviously the shifter's obviously got i guess the most newness in it but uh the brakes are basically the same what? Are they? Brakes are basically the same. Yeah. There's a slight uh, sort of aesthetical or architectural change to them and in, in that they look different and that's supposed to be uh, some sort of minor aerodynamic tweak. Um, but you actually, performance-wise, they're they're entirely the same as, as the old ones, which I think we'll all agree is probably a good thing. And the crank set, still ultra-torque, still carbon, still a titanium spindle? It is, yes, yes. Okay. Uh, still a hearth joint, still reverse thread, uh, yeah. bolt in the center and all that. But the the BCD is now smaller to accommodate the smaller chain rings mm-hmm. and the Q factor is now wider um, oh. for some reason but than I was told. Probably for the disc brake break frames, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the chain is the same as well, but with a quick link now, the, right? Yes, the chain is the same. Uh, so it's you know obviously fully compatible with the existing twelve speed stuff, but there is now also a twelve speed uh, quick link. So I think Campag first introduced quick link or C link as they call it with eCar a couple of years ago, uh, and now they've made a twelve speed version, which I know you'll be happy to hear, Dave, for mm. your waxing endeavors. I, I was I, I've definitely I was already a step ahead of the them. Past. I was already using YBN and SRAM mm. links with Campy chains. You see, I'm, I was sort of a, yeah, what was I said earlier, a Campag diehard? So I was like, yeah, you need to have the Campag chain and you have to you know, put the pin in from the opposite side and do all the pinning and all that. Um, but I did request on a couple of occasions a Campag quick link. Um, don't think I even got a response, but um, <laughs> that, that was that was before my days in, in media. So 
did did Campanello say anything about drivetrain friction? Um, because um, I mean, I know the three of us have delved into this subject quite a bit, and it's pretty well understood at this point that larger chain rings and sprockets, generally speaking, run with a little bit lower friction than smaller ones. Um, and Campagnolo seems to be following in the footsteps of SRAM here, uh, as far as going with 10. Um, and, you know, I feel like the studies on that whole thing just are, are they're not entirely, entirely clear cut all the time. Uh, SRAM certainly di- di- disputes a lot of them, but uh, um, did, did Campagnolo have anything to say about any of this? So I I asked that question specifically, and you know I I, I put it to Campag that there there will be those out there who say that there's a a, a fairly significant increase in drivetrain drag from running these smaller sprockets and chain rings, especially the ten tooth. And they sort of freely admitted that you know for the likes of your the example they give was your world tour sprinter, um, in that scenario where an optimized and the most efficient setup possible is going to make a, 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 a you know that that's what they need and will make a difference in that scenario but for the vast majority of riders as they put it the benefit from having this closer range cassette and and just the improved sort of rideability and feel from those those smaller uh, jumps between sprockets is in their opinion sort of out, outweighing that so they sort of you know acknowledge that there may well be a drop off in efficiency in those smallish brackets, but um, and I tend to agree with them to be honest. You know, if if I'm thinking my time trial bike or my race bike or whatever, I'm sort of maximizing chain rings and sprocket sizes and oversized jockey wheels and the whole works to try and improve efficiency there. But but if I'm you know on my training bike or gravel bike or whatever, you know, I just want something that's that that's going to feel and ride and and you know perhaps be a bit lighter also. Um, so yeah, they they did acknowledge it, but they also said they they don't think it matters for the most of us. I think that level of honesty on that is quite refreshing, to be honest. Like it's it's yeah, the fact that they acknowledge that there is a drop off there uh, rather than dispute it, I think is is commendable. Uh, and I, I also agree with their reasoning there is that it doesn't make a difference for the the population that are actually buying this group set in reality. Uh, yeah. Anyway, it's. Good to hear them say that. Yeah. Um, the other thing they maybe sort of admitted to, uh, without admitting to, was that you might not see all the pros that they sponsor riding this new group set. Um, so that might have something to do with that also. Um, not not quite sure, but um, yeah, I think for you know the vast majority of people who are actually purchasing this group set, they're probably not going to be racing it. Uh, for uh, for obvious obvious reasons, would, uh, that, you would know, that that you wouldn't want to crash on it is the obvious reason I'm thinking. Yeah, uh, when you say that they might not be racing on it, would they not be racing on the wireless aspect, or would they be using like the wireless derailers and shifter with old cranks and cassette? Yeah, what is the of, what does the compatibility look like? So a bit of both, actually. From what it seems, uh, it's like I sort of pressed them on. You know, if I have twelve speed record at the moment can i use my 3953 and 1132 cassettes and again they were you know to be to be to their credit they were they were pretty upfront on it they you could see they were at pains to sort of admit that yes it it is compatible it will work Uh, the only thing they were like hardline that's well not is not compatible is the new 1025 
cassette will not work with the existing 12-speed EPS or, or mechanical. So I think it's something to do with the way the parallelogram moves that it just it it just wouldn't be in the right place uh, at the, you know to to work with a 1025 cassette. Um, but from what I took from what they were sort of hinting at with the pro teams, it was there may well be some of the pro riders who are running the new wireless group set with the previous generation uh, cassette and chain rings. There may also be pros who are just riding the old, the, the previous generation EPS 12 speed. Um, so a, a bit of a mix. Fair enough. Hmm. All right. Well, um, Ronan, can we expect a longer term review from you on this sometime soon? Because I'd imagine 40K is probably not enough to really get a full feel for this thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, we were promised a long term review group set. So hopefully that's uh, that's in, that's on its way at some point soon. Uh, I think it would be, I mean, like coming away from that, I, I just felt like, uh, yeah, uh, how, how, how can I give a, a sort of, a final conclusion on that group set it's just absolutely impossible after after 40 kilometers and you know what ultimately ended up happening was that i didn't have the best of experiences on the on the new group set um perhaps that will improve with time campag has that i don't know if they've actually ever used a line but the the phrase certainly goes about that campag doesn't wear out it wears in uh, so <laughs> if that still stands true uh there there could be an improvement there i'm, I'm yeah, I'm not sure if that does or not, but uh, only only time will tell. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up there was actually a, there's a there's a vicious rumor going around that uh, a certain day of Rome actually added a line to to my to my article saying in good news there's no new tools required for this group set, which <laughs> I don't believe. Dave Rome would ever see that as good news. Uh, Couldn't have been me. That doesn't been, sound like something no, I would write. That, as I said, vicious rumor, vicious rumor. Yeah. But is it true? <laughs> it is true. There are no new tools required, which is very, very on Campagnolo, I thought. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that, so the, that, to be that fair, they, for Dave, they still that, require a, a large number of unique tools versus everything else out there. So it'll just let people catch up on, on the tools they should get. Right, and Dave already has all those tools anyway, and this Absolutely. just gives him this just gives him more more room in the budget for other tools, um. <laughs> or more room to buy the same tools again. Yeah, uh, but the yes, the the bleed kit is exactly the same, and the chain tool is is just the existing twelve uh, speed chain uh, tool. Mm. Uh, enduro bearings make, in my opinion, the best uh, puller tool oh, for the ultra torque bearing bearings. Puller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Knipex, the best uh, plier for removing the snap ring that holds on the the drive side bearing. Uh, I'd like to give a shout out to Pedro's for the best uh, value choice of chain breaker for that chain, the the Pro. Um, but yeah, Campagnolo's own chain breaker is the best if you simply just want the finest chain breaker for their chains. There you go, tool shout outs. All right. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, Ronan, I look forward to hearing your long term perspective of all that, uh, if only just. From what from one Campagnolo fan to another, so uh, let hope hopefully I'll get my hands on this thing someday somewhere. Although I'd imagine for that kind of cost, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But fingers crossed, we'll see. Um, all right, let's move on. Uh, next up on the list, I mean, you probably don't usually think too much about spokes, uh, but it's kind of a big deal when someone like DT Swiss comes out with something new. Um, Dave, what do we have here from DT Swiss? 
Yeah, they released a new off-road spoke. So for, I guess, ma- mainly mountain bike wheels, you could use it for, for gravel as well. But it's it's basically a very high-end fluted aero spoke. So imagine a slightly thicker aero spoke with kind of like a ridge down it. Uh, and it's called the Revolite. And yeah, it's it's expensive. It's same price as the Aerolite spokes, which is like their top tier aero profiled racing spoke. Uh, Weight-wise, it's within a couple of grams once you assemble it into a wheel set compared to the Aerolites or uh, that thin round spoke, the Revolution spoke. But yeah, it's it's interesting. It's 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 a bit to be honest. It's a bit vague over what the benefit of this spoke is, but uh, it seems like it has the stiffness and the low weight of the Aerolite, but with the uh, potential better impact resistance and perhaps better, um, I guess. Uh, cyclical durability of a of a round spoke. So yeah, it's kind of uh, DT Swiss's aim to combine the best of both worlds of of round and and aero spokes into into a product that has the stiffness and and weight for uh, off road purposes. I kind of wonder if this is DT Swiss trying to claw back some OEM spec because it used to be really not that long ago that DT Swiss like you, people use their spokes on everything. Um, but we've now been seeing so many other companies like Supreme, I think was the first bit non DT Swiss, uh, big player to come on the scene, yep. uh, for OEM and they took over a lot of OEM spec. And then now we've been seeing pillar, uh, yes. I think it's a Taiwanese brand. Um, a lot of people have been using their spokes, uh, seemingly to very good effect. Um, yeah, Dave, I'm, I'm kind of with you on this one. Like when, when I read the press release for this and kind of looked into the spoke itself a little bit, um, yeah, I mean, they're saying it's a little bit stronger, fine, uh, light, sure, okay. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm not, and it's just not entirely clear how this is a stronger spoke than the Aerolite. Yeah, so for me, the Aerolite's always been like, for at least a decade now, it's been my go-to spoke when budget allows, and it's it's always proven to be incredibly durable. But when I have seen them break, it's often from uh, from impact. So it's often there's been a stick or there's been a rock involved, which uh, you commonly then see the the spoke break like within the middle of the spoke, which is a pretty weird spot for a, a spoke to break. Uh, so yeah, I think that's kind of what this is trying to solve for is perhaps bring a little bit more material and reinforcement to that center of the spoke that uh, perhaps can um, yeah ward off those those breakages. Um, however rare they are but yeah i don't know there there must be enough market demand for this that the fact that they've gone to the trouble of making it because they uh you know these are cold forged so they'd be having to produce new dyes and perhaps you know new manufacturing techniques in order to make them so it's obviously no small investment that these uh that these spokes now exist hmm well um I do have a set of mountain bike wheels that I need to build sometime in the near future. So maybe I'll reach out to DT Swiss and see what I can find out. Uh, Cause as it turns out, one of the guys in my usual Tuesday night riding crew, he often brings his dog and we have nicknamed his dog spokes because Uh-oh. his dog loves to carry sticks, loves to retrieve sticks and somehow has an absolutely uncanny ability to take those sticks and just jam them right into your spokes. It is uncanny. That that is one so, vindictive dog. So we will find out if it passes the dog test. We'll see. 
Re- related, related, but not funny story. Uh, I've seen a lot of those uh, DT Swiss Airlite spokes broke last week. Uh, you mentioned impacts. Uh, a teammate of mine was impacted by a team car uh, in the Ross uh, and his rear wheel. It was, it was like a side impact. It was, it was, he was, he was out of the race, but he had no uh, on a suspected concussion. No. Um, you know, broken bones or, or injuries that way, which I think made it even more difficult for him. But the point I was going to get to is that it was sort of the first time that I had seen DT Swiss spokes broke in that way. And it was, there was about 10 of the rear spokes were, uh, that was the only damage done to the bike also. So it was, you know, as bad as it was, it was incredibly uh, lucky. It, it, it turned out so well also. Um, but yeah, impact to the spokes and they snapped right all of them almost in the same place around the, the, the middle of the spoke. Hmm. Interesting. Well, Dave, I suspect I suspect you may see some of these spokes coming up soon uh, on some custom wheel builds because you are heading soon to the Handmade Bicycle Show Australia. How soon oh, is that coming up? What a segue. Uh, three days I'm on a plane. Well, Wednesday here, so I'm, I leave Friday morning. So uh, I'll have breakfast with the whole Melbourne-based Escape Collective crew. Uh, a growing crew as well with uh, the likes of Jared and Jace joining us recently uh, and uh, yeah uh, then on to the show so yeah it's uh, probably not probably it is my favorite show to cover every year it's uh, it always sparks uh, my passion for for events and uh, for the world of cycling uh, if it if the passion's ever wavering so it's uh, yeah it's it's a very cool f- uh, facility. It's a very great show, uh, and it's it's hard not to get excited when you see the the continual innovation and sort of drive forward from a, a small group of Aussies. Um, you know, they've they've been pretty pivotal for a lot of technological developments in recent years. Well, I for one always look forward to your galleries from that event. They're always really really good. Uh, and uh, where was I going with this? <laughs> Yeah, well, I, for one, am looking forward to your content from that because the, the galleries are always fantastic. Uh, wish I could join you there. One day, maybe I will. Um, you, thankfully, are going to be joining me for the Made show up in Portland, Oregon. So that'll be nice to have two of us over there. Um, but speaking of custom bikes, we just recently published a new comprehensive guide to buying your first custom bike. Uh, it's full of super useful information that you should go check out now on escapecollective.com. However, uh, keen-eyed readers might also note that the article was written by a familiar name, uh, that of Matt Wickstrom. Uh, Matt was the original tech editor at the old place. Um, and after after taking a break from writing for a couple of years, uh, we just want to extend to him a very warm welcome back. Uh, we're looking forward to seeing more from him in the weeks and months ahead. So good to have you back, Matt. And it looks like we are all going to have to step up our photography game yet again because the master of bike photography is back. So yeah, welcome back, Matt. Welcome back, Matt Wickstrom. Yeah, welcome back, Matt Wickstrom. Yeah, uh, I would say Matt is working at an unfair advantage, being based uh, right near Hillary's in Western Australia, which uh, is renowned for its sunsets, uh, like internationally renowned for its sunsets. It's uh, yeah, it's it's hard to beat that sort of light for for uh, general landscape photography, and uh, yeah, he just so happens to put a bike in front of his landscape shot. So yeah, in, indeed, a little jealous, but uh, you know we can't uh, can't win them all. And uh, you know the the benefit is is that him being in Perth, he still is just getting onto color TV. So uh, that's <laughs> you know that's the trade off. 
Well, yeah, and we, it does take us a while to get some of his submissions every now and then because he does have to send off his film to get developed. So, yeah, yeah, takes us a little while. Switch off the fax machine and all that. So, <laughs> it's uh, no. Anyway, good to have you back, Matt. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the news. Um, let's uh, kind of since we have the three of us here on the show today, which is seemingly a rare occurrence. I'm kind of curious what's on everyone's mind. Dave, want to start with you? Yeah, uh, I'm feeling a little bit sore today. Uh, got uh, quite a grazed back and a few bruises. Um, turns out gravel shoes are not, uh, well, specifically Shimano's gravel shoes, because that's what I was wearing at the time. Uh, the RX801s are not the most secure of tread. Um, I had a slightly comical, uh, almost like banana slip style moment yesterday as i was uh climbing down from a rock shelf at the top of the rock shelf and uh both of my heels left me uh and i ended up uh sliding down quite uh yeah viciously down uh down this this rock shelf and uh yeah that that hurt and it was a good reminder that uh not all shoe tread are created equal and that uh uh some gravel shoes are not actually made for walking (laughs) <laughs> yeah uh i have those same shoes right now those have been my those have been kind of my go-to partially for the last few few weeks as I've been, i'm testing those as well so we'll have a review of that pretty soon um but uh yeah i have to say the tread on those shoes have kind of me kind of reminded me of cds in the sense mm. that um like the tread seems to be there mainly to provide support of the shoe on the pedal as opposed to being widely spaced to provide a good foundation for your foot when you're walking. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, that's really the only major miss on those shoes. Mm. Um, but in any event, you, you kind of gave that nice visual image of, of kind of like, the, you know, both your heels sliding out from underneath you. I guarantee you that was not as good of a visual image of me riding mountain bikes with some buddies up in Winter Park, Colorado yesterday. Uh, we ran into one section that was still going through a whole bunch of uh, snowmelt, and there were a bunch of pretty deep puddles, like almost lakes, I would say, kind of going through this dirt road that we were kind of traversing across. And as I was going through one of them, I my my front wheel caught a root that was underneath the water that I could not see, and I basically ended up on my back in the water. And uh, a friend of mine, thankfully, did get a photo, and I was very, very wet. And I guarantee oh. you that the water was very cold. Does sound cold? <laughs> not, not an ideal situation. That, that I cannot fault any shoe for that one. That was purely me. Mm. Uh, I'm blaming the shoe, and I'm sticking to it. <clears throat> <laughs> All right, uh, Ronan, what do you got? I mean, I feel like I kind of have to share the story of my crash last week. Now, also, <laughs> yeah. please do, please do. But well, I, I just came down. Uh, a mass pileup at 50 odd kilometers per hour with three and a half kilometers to go on stage three. But, um, there, there was, there was definitely a moment or a second midair where I was like, well, we're about to find out how brittle my bones are where they are. Uh, it turns out <laughs> not all that brittle. I'm, I'm fine. But the, the, what I actually wanted to talk about, uh, or what actually is on my mind this weekend, I'm not sure if I want to talk about it or not is just that, Last week was my first experience of sort of, uh, you know, big, big Peloton racing everybody on disc brakes. Um, and I'm not sure I really enjoyed it all that much. Turns out giving people braking power 
is maybe not all that good an idea. There was there was certainly a few crises that were the direct result of people just being able to lock up much more violently than they maybe could have done in the past. Uh, one one incident, the dog ran out, and there was sort of panic in the peloton, and and, and the 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 guy who crashed literally locked up his front wheel and went over the handlebars. Um, and that happened. I've seen that happen on a few occasions. Also seen, you know, countless people locking up their rear wheel. And I just don't remember that happening that often the last time I was in a in a big peloton like that. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know if my, like, mentions are going to just go berserk for the next week off the back of that. But it was definitely, it, it was definitely something I noticed last week that I don't recall from racing previously. What, uh, I mean, for the people unaware of what you raced, what, what was the race and what sort of level is it? Uh, it was the Ross, which is, um, it's a five-day sort of tour of Ireland. And it was previously UCI 2.2. Uh, it was then, it disappeared for a while with COVID, came back last year as a five-day sort of international elite, but no longer UCI race. So it's probably just that, you know, one rung below UCI 2.2. There was 175 riders in the bunch, I think, and there was a good 10 teams came in from abroad and 25 home base teams. So um, it was it was pretty high level. Like it was there was I think the first three stages in a row we averaged something like 48 and a half, 49 k an hour. So it was yeah, it was it was and, full on. And do you think the people that are putting flat spots on their Vittoria Pro tires are uh, are perhaps spending too much time on Zwift, or is it really? really the disc brakes fault no like i mean like the a couple of riders who i've seen locking up they're they're not bad bike riders they're yeah, okay. they're, they're good bike riders and uh, you know regardless of how good you are if you're on a peloton you can you can crash uh you know yeah. it happens the best riders so um you know i i it was just as much as a as much of a disc brake convert as i am it was just last week i went hmm Actually, maybe it was better when we had wet carbon rims and nobody could break. <laughs> Which I'm joking, obviously. That is, was not better, but um, yeah. I mean, I can see what you mean, Ronan, because when you have a large group of riders in a situation like that, all closely packed in, uh, it does make sense that you know just how you wouldn't want someone suddenly turning left and right inside the peloton. You wouldn't necessarily want someone who is able to very, very quickly de- decelerate or accelerate, I guess. Um, you just generally wouldn't want a huge change in in velocity, so either speed or direction. Um, and yeah, I guess disc brakes does provide that now, for better or worse. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly as I was navigating the bunch, which is probably probably the only thing that I miss from from road racing um, more often is just the sort of buzz of being in a big big peloton like that, and so. You know, closely packed together, traveling at speed, moving through the bunch, um, and I was certainly more conscious of riders coming backwards quicker than I ever was previously. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't think it changed how I how I rode the bunch, but it's certainly something that I was aware of that I'd never thought of previously. But here, maybe I'm just getting over. So you're basically saying that, like the. The, the distance to braking is is so much less than like the person's reaction time behind that rider is is kind of yes. the, the difference here. Mm. It's like yeah, yeah, you used to have a, a greater reaction time of seeing that person 
slowing down and perhaps not successfully slowing down with with rim brakes on on carbon wheels. And I don't even know if you see it; you just sense it, or or you know you're aware that a slowdown is about to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe 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 that's an argument. Had it rained last week, maybe yeah. I would have heard it coming, and it would have been better. But we had dry conditions all by the last day. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Good. Good thought. Hmm. Uh, well, what I've got in my mind is, uh, thankfully not related to crashing at all. Uh, it's with C2 bangles actually, because, uh, in particular with full suspension mountain bikes, we see a lot more kind of unusual frame designs, particularly ones that have, um, non-straight seat tubes. Uh, and also this is something that we see a lot more in gravel bikes as well. Um, so if you look at a geometry chart, you will generally see, a reported seat tube angle, but that's usually a kind of virtual seat tube angle. Um, and just one thing to keep in mind, if you are shopping for a new bike, you're trying to figure out what size you need or whatever, um, those seat tube angles, again, they are virtual, but they are measured with the saddle at a particular height. And I think it's important to keep in mind that if your particular saddle height is not exactly average, then that can certainly affect that effective seat tube angle and uh for that reason and maybe even that reason alone i think it's still important that people when you are out shopping for a mount or shopping for a mountain bike or any bike that has a non-straight seat tube angle that kind of goes straight through the center of the bottom bracket like it had traditionally uh still important to try and get a test ride on that thing if possible because that saddle may be further forward or further back than you want it to be or may actually be in a good spot that you want that you didn't think you could achieve based on the reported c2 angle so just something to keep in mind yeah and uh yeah like the the way stack and reach figures uh are often used as a i guess a con- a consistent measurement to compare against bike sizes um yeah the uh, the reach doesn't uh doesn't count for seat tube angle so that's uh that is as james says yeah a common a common area to to get misguided by just simply looking at that reach and stack figures indeed indeed so that's all i had on that but so let's go ahead we're we're just about done with time here uh anyone got a public service announcement that they'd like to share oh ronan's got a finger up very eagerly he's got something hot I, I want to sort of interrupt your weekly reminder to check your headsets uh, with with a different. Oh, that's right! It has a different... been a week since we've mentioned the the ring of death. <laughs> yeah, maybe if you want to take a second just to remind folks to check their headsets. Um, I I want to I want to I want to just give a mention to uh, a topic that we wouldn't typically cover on this uh, podcast, but I do believe it is relevant. Um, and well. Nutrition uh, and specifically, I was about SAS. to joke protein powder, <laughs> and then and then you actually anyway okay yeah not protein powder but okay. SIS new new tropics gels which uh, they've got their beta fuel branding on the front of the gels and beta fuel for anybody that doesn't know it is like a it it was first developed as a carbohydrate energy drink uh, had eighty grams of carbs per per bottle uh, was kind of the first to to push that limit uh, and then SAS branched out into beta bars and beta gels and now they brought out these new beta fuel nootropics gels now maybe I'm a bit slow or something I'm not sure but I didn't know what nootropics were uh, apparently they're like a study drug or something they're not not illegal but they're like students will use them to stay awake and stay more alert for longer while they're studying 
Um, so that that's part of the thinking behind this new gel in that this new tropics in, ingredient or whatever it is is supposed to improve your decision making and heighten your awareness uh, while you're in the peloton or whatever. Now, what it doesn't say it what it does say in the front of these gel wrappers is that that has forty grams of carbohydrates, and there is no other mention of you know apart from beta fuel SAS nootropics and 40 grams of carbs per serving there's no mention of what else is in it so i went down to the local bike shop about a week before the ross and bought a lot of these gels i mean <laughs> maybe 50 um I bought, I bought a lot uh i'm a i'm a big believer in fueling the engine and under the assumption that these were carbohydrate gels because the last better fuel gels i had were just carbohydrate gels so got to the ross went through stage one, took five of these gels on stage one, felt pretty good, raced pretty well, finished in the bunch, whatever, started stage two, again, took five during stage two, and within about 10 minutes of finishing stage two, I, I took pretty violently ill. I mean, like, I was pretty sure I was out of the race. I, I, I was stuck to the bed. I was not getting up other than to be sick. And... It didn't quite understand what had happened. I was pretty sure something had sprayed off the road and into my mouth and made me sick that way. Um, but it was only the next morning when I had come round, recovered, had managed to eat dinner, was fine again, and I happened to be watching a video on time trial nutrition, and they mentioned these new, these new, new tropic gels from SIS that include two hundred milligrams of caffeine, which I wasn't aware of. And long story short, it seems that I, my illness was actually an overdose on caffeine because <laughs> not realizing that each of these gels had 200 milligrams of caffeine in them, I had taken five two days in a row, which is 2,000 milligrams of, or is 1,000 milligrams of caffeine. But funny story, I had two other gels that had 75 milligrams of caffeine, so less than half the caffeine content that I had been saving for the end of the stages <laughs> as my caffeine gels. <laughs> so I had those two. Uh, again, long story short, I had somewhere in the region of 12, uh, 12, 1300 milligrams of caffeine between breakfast, pre-stage, and during the stage, two days in a row. And it sounds it like an admission of doping, Ronan. <laughs> at one point this would have been doping because the limit was well well below 1200 milligrams um but uh yeah so i had around 1300 milligrams of caffeine per day two days in a row turns out the safe not even the safe but like the threshold for inducing seizures and in that is around 1200 milligrams i believe uh so that really really scared me uh and then when i started like reading the the small print on the back of these uh gel wrappers that's where it says it's the very last part of the nutritional information it says 200 milligrams of caffeine per gel and it also says in tiny small print do not consume more than one of these gels per day oh my goodness <laughs> so i've never known a gel to come with a warning like that i also have to question why it's so small on the back of the wrapper rather than being like big bold I think I also kind of feel like if they put it on big bold print at the front new tropics 200 milligrams of caffeine do not take more than one per day like that surely is going to make them sell even better you're going to take one for every you know you there will be writers like that who will want that specific gel because you can only have one of them they're so potent you can only have one uh, so I feel like they're missing a bit of a marketing trick but more you know it's more seriously 
I think there should be a better warning there that these are not just carbohydrate gels. I'm I'm happy to hear you uh made it through and didn't uh didn't uh yeah, I don't know, find a somewhat humorous <laughs> way to kill yourself. Um but I kinda uh, wonder what would have happened if you kept if you kept on that nutrition schedule for the whole race. I, I'm not sure I'd be sitting here having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh that's not quite where I thought you were going with that, which is um <laughs> I, I was in a bike shop about, uh, this is, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago now, working in a shop and we had a guy who was doing his first 100 kilometer mountain bike race and wanted some sports nutrition. So we're like, oh, here you go. We sold him some um, electrolyte based, uh, uh, you know, mix for his for his water and we're like, oh, just, you know, it doesn't have a, a large amount of flavor. So just follow the instructions is what we told him. Uh, it was Endura, which I think is an Australian brand, but it's uh, known to be very high on magnesium. Anyway, uh, he apparently oh, did the I race. See where, I see where you're going on with this one. Apparently did the race, uh, came in to tell us a week later that he actually ended up having to go to hospital to be on a drip because uh, his uh, stomach was so bad that he ended up being so heavily dehydrated that, uh, yeah, it was it was a hospital trip to to stop this from happening. And turns out that uh, he was expecting to taste somewhat like Gatorade. So although the instructions were there, he he decided to keep adding it until it was sweet like Gatorade. And he used the entire tub over three liters <laughs> uh, and consumed the entire tub of it in a in the space of six or so hours. Um, so that's where I thought you were going with that PSA, which is to to read the in necessary yeah read the instructions and don't uh, overdose on magnesium. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 is magnesium no but read the instructions yes that is okay. where i was going with that psa and that uh the the fine print might be on the back of your gels um the the last place you'd expect to find small print um but mm. turns out quite important mm. <laughs> all right well i uh Good one. I, i'm i don't have anything to top that one so i'm gonna go ahead and call <laughs> it right there <laughs> Uh, as always, thanks for listening to this week's show. Uh, if you liked what you heard, if you were enter- if you found us entertaining or informative, uh, please go ahead and head over to iTunes to leave us a rating and review. As I've mentioned before, it really does help us out quite a bit. Uh, maybe you have or have not noticed this is we don't have any ads on the show aside from. Uh, trying to get more people to sign up for memberships. Um, but this is it. This is all we got. So no ads in the show. So you are our support here. So uh, thank you again for all of you who have signed up. And yeah, uh, definitely please go leave a rating and review. Uh, if you haven't become a member of the Escape Collective, please, again, as I said, head over to escapecollective.com slash join and see if any of those options work out for you. Um, otherwise, that's all we got for this week. Um <laughs> I'm just I'm gonna try and get that th- those mental images out of my head of 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 being basically poisoned by magnesium and caffeine. So <laughs> we'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye.